good evening and a very, very warm welcome to Camelot Castle TV Network. And tonight we have uh, somebody whose star has all of a sudden risen in the United Kingdom, uh, Professor uh, Carol Sciorra, or I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce the name, but we're going to find out from him in a second, is with us this evening and is joining us. Now, um, he is the Dean of Buckingham University, and I'm just going to get him on screen. Professor, good evening. Did I, did I pronounce that correctly? Sciorra or... Sikora. Sikora. Now, it's a Polish name. I was going to say, is it a Polish name? In fact, um, yeah. our, our, the head of our technical division at um, Camelot Castle tele TV Network is actually Polish, uh, and the Polish are great freedom fighters, as as uh, I'm sure you're aware. Uh, I, I my father came over during the war as a captain in the Polish army, joined the British army, and ended up marrying a Scottish girl who was my mother. And here I am. Well, you know, it's it's a little known fact, or maybe some people do know this, but the the Polish uh, soldiers, and indeed, of course, the airmen in in the Second World War, probably contributed and really made the difference. I know in the Battle of Britain there was one Polish squadron that was very very pivotal. Um, and apparently they were so courageous, and the reason they shot down so many Germans, I, I, you maybe heard the story, is that they, was, they were willing to get much closer to the German planes than the British airmen, apparently. But um, you, of course, uh, helped found uh, Buckingham University. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about your, your, you know, who you are so that our viewers could get a little bit of familiarity with that before we get into the meat and potatoes? So I've been an NHS consultant for 40 years and uh, was at Cambridge, then Middlesex Hospital, Standard Pathway, uh, became a cancer specialist and uh, in, in later life found other things to do. I still do cancer clinics. I still have a network of cancer centers. But now uh, I became dean of in 2010. I became dean of the medical school at Buckingham. And we've now had uh, 130 students a year graduate in the last two years, each in the last two years. And, you know, it's been a fascinating period of time. Uh, everything's changing. The NHS is changing. All healthcare systems around the world are struggling simply because of three things. Aging populations, which require more attention, more physicians, more nurse time, technology changing. And then the cost structure, who is going to pay for healthcare? Only three ways, tax, cash, and insurance. And there's nothing else you can do. And all countries are struggling with those three things. We've gone for a tax-based system. America, it's more of an insurance-based system. Europe, it's mainly a mixture of insurance and tax. And at the end of the day, People are having to pay out of pocket more and more for good health care. That's inevitable as we go forward. Well, um, you know, I think um, you're absolutely right. But I, I, can I commend you uh, on, on the reputation that Buckingham has uh, around the world? I mean, you really have done a superb uh, job with that. Even I, who know very little about the medical community, have actually heard of Buckingham University and the great results that people are getting there. So 
uh, that I speaks speaks volumes because um, this is not an area that I'm expert in. Now, um, you have been quite outspoken uh, in relation to the government's handling of you know what is going on and. I think your voice is very, very important. And what I would ask all of our viewers, we've actually got quite a lot of people uh, on the feed right now. And if I could just ask everybody to feed the, to, to press the share button, because the information that you're about to receive is going to be important. I think your friends may find it very, very useful. I'm just going to play a short clip of um, the professor um, on, I think it was, Philip Schofield, you were with. Was this Good Morning, Good Morning Britain? I actually just have a clip of that. It's a short clip, and I would like our viewers to see you in action. So uh, here we go. It was the eye-catching tweet that got us all talking when earlier this week a leading health specialist suggested we might not need a coronavirus vaccine. Professor Carol Sakura, a positive voice of reason in this pandemic, wrote there's a real chance the virus will burn out naturally, so could a vaccine be meaningless? Well, Professor Carol joins us now, and it's lovely to talk to you. It is that you sent out was that we, we need to keep slowing the virus, but it could be petering out by itself. And you said that other pa pandemics have petered out. It happened with SARS and it happened with MERS. And it happened with the Great Plague, the bubonic plague. No one understands. And I, I've looked at the literature of why pandemics end. And in the past, obviously, there were no vaccines. The great historic pandemics in Asia, in Italy, uh, and, and, and the whole of Europe, in fact. Pandemics tend to follow the routes of the of travel, the routes of the, the the old Silk Road from China through Asia into Europe was one of the spreaders of the plague, and it ended in a piffle. It just went poof and went. You know, the military metaphor is we're going to blast this virus and get it out. Mr. Trump would love that. Uh, on Good Morning or This Morning. Uh, which is the competitor, good, good, the, the not Piers Morgan show, basically, the one with Philip uh, Schofield, I'm sure he's, he's a nicer fellow than Piers Morgan. But anyway, um, what sort of response have you, have you had, Professor? I mean, uh, to, 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 I mean that's, that's pretty big exposure, really, on a subject that everybody's attention is on. I think the real problem, is it heresy or is it truth? And that, that's, it goes against conventional wisdom. But if you look at all the metrics, this pandemic is coming to an end. I and mean, it's coming to an end much faster than we could ever have predicted. You mentioned earlier that the Ferguson model of 500,000 deaths, that's not going to happen, clearly. Uh, but when you look at things, you see the incidence is dropping markedly. And in Britain, the incidence is dropping even more than it looks in the data because we're doing more testing. The more you look, the more you find by definition. The second thing, the hospitals, the wards are empty. The patients aren't coming through because they don't need to come through, which is tremendous. And then the third thing is the mortality. That's crashed right down. And you know, we're actually below in the last week, we uh, have less deaths than one would expect for the comparative week last year. In other words, sure, maybe some of the older people have actually passed in the last month or two, but the deaths have gone right down to below average for the time of year. So, um, you know, we're, we're returning to normal at a speed that you couldn't predict. 
there are only two things, John, in this pandemic. The host, that's us, and the virus, that's the, the, the corona. And we're doing a dance together, both of us. We're altering our behavior as we go. And I get the feeling we've altered our behavior, social distancing, fear, um, you know, shutting down everything, which will have disastrous consequences economically, as we all know. And then on the other side, the virus, which seems to be weakening. It seems to be weakening its ability to infect. And more than that, its ability to cause the very serious lung damage that causes critical care admission, ventilation, and eventually death for a significant number of people. So in this dance that we have, how does it end up? Well, it ends up like SARS or MERS, in which we learn to live with each other. The virus is there. We've probably all been infected by SARS, but it never caused a big deal for us. This one's caused a big deal, possibly because how we reacted to it in this violent way. And politically, it just makes no sense to, to keep on lockdown, to keep on quarantine, to do all these measures that are completely appropriate for public health enemies. But this is no longer a big public health enemy. That's my concept of the whole thing. But, you know, I keep saying, who am I to know? I'm just an oncologist. But it affects me and it affects my patients because they can't get treated. And that's been the problem. Well, who are you to know? You are the dean of one of the most important medical universities uh, in the United Kingdom, and you are somebody who uh, has the opportunity to evaluate vast amounts of data and to communicate, I'm sure, with a vast number of professionals. So um, I think your opinion is important. I think it does have weight, and um, I think there's a lot of common sense. Could, could you take us through, because... Um, even though in hindsight, I don't believe we should have locked down. That's my personal opinion. In hindsight, I think with foresight, when we didn't know what was coming out of China um, and we didn't know whether or not their data was actually true or the, if it was basically uh, sort of Chinese models. Um, what was your... Could you just sort of take us through how... What, as you saw this story breaking... Could you just take us through, give us a sort of long version of what you sort of observed going through this and how your view perhaps changed as it went through? I mean, do you feel we were right to lock down in the first place based on the fact that we didn't really know whether we were going to be overwhelmed? What's your, what's your feeling on that? Or was that all wrong as well? What's your, what's your sort of feeling on that? So my feeling to start with was that it would all go away. And I kept telling him, this is not a big deal. It'll all go away like SARS. We were never affected by SARS in 2003, nor MERS in 2012. So I thought, this will blow. So you, but called it, it clearly, you, you called it right, really, from, from the beginning, because you were, yeah. well, were right. If, if we'd ignored it, if we just carried on as normal, okay, there'd have been an excess death, mainly of older people, uh, but it would have blown away without this economic disaster that we've not got to yet. I mean, you know, we've furloughed staff and all that, but who's paying the bill? I and mean, who knows where it's all going to come from? It's going to be us that pays the bill. It's not the chaps in Whitehall that are paying uh, the cash for it. It's us. Mm. Uh, so as we move forward, what actually happened? Well, 
the Ferguson model, which is sort of now discredited, he's done it before this guy with, with foot and mouth disease and a variety of other predictions. Mathematical models showed that 500,000 people would die unless we did something. So Boris was spooked by that, I think. The whole government was spooked by it. They believed it. So they said, OK, we've got to have lockdown on the 23rd. I remember I was out at a dinner party on the 23rd when the news came through. Luckily, we were out there. So quite legal because it had only just been announced. Tomorrow, we're going into lockdown. So I'm OK until tomorrow. And that was it. And uh, would I have made the same decision? Probably so. Someone told me that's the possibility. But, you know, what what is particularly annoying about these guys in government, and they don't look good at these these five o'clock meetings. They don't look as they, they don't feel confidence in everybody. Is that, that it's a day by day evolution. This the story is swirling around. The virus is swirling around. It's a twenty four hour a twenty four seven decision making, and yet they say we'll review in three weeks time. This is just craziness. You want to review every day, certainly every week, to make decisions that are affecting the whole of Britain so profoundly. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich uh, or you're poor. If you're poor, you're actually more affected by this. Your kids are more affected. They can't get education. They don't have laptop computers. And, uh, you know, they don't have the wherewithal for the parents necessarily to actually deal with it. They don't have big houses and gardens. So it is the most ridiculous situation. And my solution now, forget the past, my solution now is let's get out of here just as quickly as possible. We've got the tools to monitor things. We've got all the tools we need. We can do the tests. We can do the antibodies. We can just move forward. I think this obsession with getting an app that's going to follow us round. Well, the older people won't download it. They don't have smartphones and they don't have to use them. I'm, I'm in that category, by the way, Sean. I, 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 I struggle to download. <laughs> useless. As you saw um, trying to connect on Skype. Exactly, exactly. And then I run out of juice, you know, and I get to my daughter and she fixes it and that's how me dumb. And... Uh, no, but and then the next thing is the younger people, they don't want to know where they're going tonight. And why Why would you want to follow people? So the, the, the thought that petrifies me is someone with a clipboard pitches up at my door, even worse that they've got a nice policeman standing behind them looking at me like this, saying, where were you on Saturday night? We'd like to know. We've found that you were within a, a meter of someone that's proven positive for corona. We want you to isolate yourself for 14 days. And by the way, we want to take a blood sample. And I'll tell them to go away. And the policeman will say, you can't tell them to go away. This is not what we signed up for. No. And I'm afraid that that's the potential way it's going. But luckily, John, I think what's going to happen, the virus is going to go away and leave us alone before we need to go into that scenario. And I agree, we always have to plan for the for the worst thing happening and, and hope for the best. But this is that that sort of thing is an extremist view of how society is going to react to something. Well, I think that's uh, your voice is very welcome to my ears. One of the things I did just want to pick up on, you mentioned that the virus is weakening and you're not the first person that has said that viruses through their life cycle as they travel through uh, a culture do weaken. Now, is there historic precedence on this? Is, is that the case or is, have I understood that wrong? No, you, you've understood it correctly. And if you look at evolution, 
any parasite wants to live with its host, ideally, it doesn't want to kill its host because that would kill itself. So it's like suicide to kill all your your your, your beautiful bodies that you're going to go and infect. The, the more the more you can live with someone, the better for the virus. And, you know, my wife is fed up with me asking, does coronavirus have a soul? And uh, I'd love to get the Archbishop of Canterbury to have a dialogue about this, but he seems strangely silent in his kitchen doing masses, doing services from his kitchen. I, I think, you know, but in seriously, in evolution, the, the parasite, whether it's the bubonic plague, whether it's uh, anthrax, in this case, coronavirus, to survive, it has to come to some sort of relationship, make an agreement with the host. Mm. Now, if it just killed us all, that would be it over. So it doesn't want to do that. So as it goes through in the pandemic, it learns how to live in a way that doesn't harm the host so much. And that's what we're seeing now. I guess when it first came, it wiped out a lot of predominantly older people that were had existing conditions, and it liked that. It liked doing that. Now it's finished. I mean, I, I'm putting human terms on a, on a tiniest particle that you could say is not even alive. It is alive, I of have, course. I have considered whether or not uh, there is a spiritual aspect to the virus, funnily enough. It is something that I have considered. And very often... Uh, uh, to my mind, the Lord in his wisdom, um, you know, there is a, a sort of a higher design and maybe some of the lessons that we're learning from this virus are not so much medical lessons, but they are lessons that we need to learn in relation to our freedoms and our human rights and whether or not we want people turning up on our doorstep with clipboards. Because um, a lot of these rights, I feel, we've been uh, allowing to slip by the wayside uh, for many, many years, and one can speak to, um, you know, the invasive nature of, of social media and the data collecting that's been going on in relation to that. Um, and now, of course, we're seeing all sorts of censorship occurring uh, on the social media front. So uh, I, it, I don't think it's an entirely unwise uh, thing to consider, although um, I won't hold my breath for the Archbishop to, <laughs> to <laughs> issue official church policy on it. But uh, I think it is worth considering. It's interesting. I, I believe there is sentience in all in all life forms. Um, uh, you know, from the virus up through earthworms, up through you know, obviously human beings in some cases. Um, but there we go. So, where do you? If you, I mean, I, let me let me. Uh, I'll give you a few minutes to gather your thought because I would really like you to. We we do have some very interesting people on this feed. Uh, from London, we have uh, uh, Letitia Cash, who is the uh, daughter of Bill Cash, funnily enough, who is the Brexiteer uh, member of the House of Commons. So uh, his grace, the Duke of Marlborough, uh, has joined us from Blenheim Palace. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, we have... Um, if you were to have a sort of uh, a three-minute communication with um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, what would you say to him, man to man, you know, privately? What what would you say? Because you are somebody that has a, truly a wealth of medical experience, a wealth of life experience. You've helped put one of the top universities, Buckingham University, on the map and have seen many great doctors graduate. 
and help them do so. Um, what would your communication to the Prime Minister be? I'd say, look, let's not recriminate about what's happened now in the past. It is what it is, that famous saying. Uh, let's get out of here. Let's get a strategy that gets us out of here as quickly as possible. And let's get people back to work. Let's get the bars and shops open. Let's cheer people up and move forward. They've had very powerful psychological interplay with the Protect NHS, Save Lives, sort of short words, the slogan, if you like. And it was very powerful because it implied that if you didn't do this, other people would suffer. So the whole of society doesn't want other people to suffer. So they obeyed and they got petrified. And you can still see people are petrified on the streets out there. We've got to stop that. We've got to get people to go back to work. The trains are empty. I've been traveling around. I've been up to Newcastle. I've been to Newport in South Wales. I'm going to Liverpool on Tuesday and for work. And the trains are just empty. And yet they prepared social distancing. They prepared for all this. We've got to start using. We've got to get people back to work. And, and not just for the economy, just for the whole of society. And we've got to get the teachers back. I'm mean, this nonsense of not opening the schools. You know, Austria, Denmark, Czech Republic, they opened the schools a month ago. And there's been no second wave. There's been no problem in the schools. Uh, we've got to follow that. So I would tell Boris, let's get moving. Let's stop all this, uh, you know, cotton wool around people. Let's get them back to normal. And stay alert is the most stupid slogan out. I mean, stay alert from what? You can't see the virus. It reminds me of uh, uh, the, the, the president of Belarus who said, the virus will drown in my vodka. I can't see it. What virus? It's not quite like that, but there's no doubt we just have to get moving now. And I, I, if we don't, <clears throat> we'll miss a huge opportunity. The problem, John, is one of the models from our famous Neil Ferguson was that by September there would be a second wave of virus. We'd have to go back into lockdown. Not only that, we're coming into winter and the NHS suffers from what's called winter pressures, which is a polite way of saying a lot of older people come in with pneumonia that need treating and block beds. So you have to stop routine surgery because it's happened every year for the last decade. And that would catch up with the second wave. So you'd have a disaster situation, which would again shut down the NHS to cancer, to heart disease, to mental health, whilst you treat mainly elderly people with chest infection. We can't afford that. We've got to develop, and it may not happen. The, the second wave is only a, a mathematical prediction. It's not happening anywhere else that has come out of lockdown. So, Boris, let's move forward quickly. Well, thank you, and we will do our best. Um, and those of you that do, that are watching tonight, that do have your connections to the Prime Minister, please do do what you can to get uh, the professor's very important message to the Prime Minister. Now, there is um, one other point that you raised, and, and you made me aware of a figure of a number of people that are waiting now operations. Um, could you just go over that with our audience? 
So the NHS waiting list normally runs at about 2 million people. That's the nature of the system. It's a ration service. We all know the problems and I've campaigned for trying to change it a bit, but you get, it's a religion. People, even more of a religion now, it's a national treasure now. So the problem is now there are 8 million people waiting for operations. And for cancer, what's happened over the last two months, the number of diagnoses of cancer has fallen right down. It's not because cancer has taken a couple of months off. It's simply that the service has not been available. You can't get x-rays, you can't get scans, you can't get endoscopy. These are the common ways that cancer is diagnosed, which means that the cancer clinics are actually quite empty. They're waiting for customers that haven't materialized. They'll all come, but they'll come in July, August. By then, the cancers will have spread out of the primary organ. It's called upward stage migration. The stage of the cancer goes upwards and therefore requires more treatment and has a poorer outcome. So again, for my patient's sake, and for cardiologists, patients say, heart specialists say, it's important we get moving. We, we stop this obsession with COVID and start redirecting the NHS and other, even independent healthcare systems back into, in, into clearly moving forward to get business as usual. Well, this is, this is uh, really, a horrible figure, 8 million people now, as opposed to an average of 2 million waiting for operations. For those of you that have just joined us, um, please do share this feed. Um, Professor Carroll is uh, the Dean of Buckingham University, and he is somebody with a tremendous amount of medical know-how and experience. Uh, he's helped bring about many hundreds of doctors uh, who now are flourishing throughout the world. And uh, he knows of what he speaks. Um, you did touch upon the fact, I mean, I know a lot of our uh, followers are against mandatory vaccination. Um, I am not anti-vax, um, but I certainly think twice before I take a vaccination. Now, you said something quite interesting on the breakfast television the other day, is you said that a vaccination may in fact not even be necessary. Would you like to sort of illuminate that point? Um, so coronavirus COVID-2, the current problem, is very much related to previous coronaviruses, SARS and MERS. And although attempts to make a vaccine were tried for those, nothing really came and they've gone away without a vaccine. This one, hopefully, will be away well before a vaccine is developed. If you actually look at the data, despite the hype in the media, which is all about money, it's all about big pharma money, AstraZeneca, Glaxo, Pfizer, uh, and share prices and all these things. The reality is the vaccine won't come till after the Christmas. It can't. It, by the time you do that, you can have the vaccine. You've got to test it in animals. You've got to test it in populations. You've got to look for safety. That takes time. You can't hurry those trials because of the safety aspects. You don't want to be vaccinating 30 million people and suddenly find there's a, a problem that causes blindness or thyroid problems or some other cross-reaction with part of the immune system in the body. So if you have to do that, you know, it would be such a disaster if this virus is going to go on till Christmas and we have to have lockdown till Christmas. It would, it's a sort of 
impossible to see when you look at the data. So I think we're well out of it before a vaccine becomes available. The interesting point that you raised, John, mm. is this mandatory. You know, can you make it compulsory for people to have a vaccine? Now, you can if people are traveling. You can say you have to have a yellow fever certificate at the back of your passport if you want to come into my country. Very few countries require that. In fact, no country. There's a few African countries until recently have required that, uh, the, the yellow fever, a certificate jaune, it was called. Uh, uh, it was the, the French for yellow, and the, it was wonderful. But And I remember carrying one when I was in the WHO for several years. But... Uh, for, you can't compel people to vaccinate themselves or their children. I mean, that would be in a free society. They have to make their own mind. I hope they would, you know, the, the current anti, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, obviously, and I, I think they're misinformed, some of them. But for this, I think it would be completely unreasonable to expect people to just go to their GP and have it, just like the flu vaccine. It's If you want to have it, you can have it. It's free if you're over 60. And it doesn't work that well. It does work. And I actually had it for the first time last year because the year before I had quite bad episode of influenza. So I'll, I'll try the vaccine. And you know, a trial of one patient in one year doesn't make a, a real story. It's not evidence based. But, uh, you know, the, the problem with the flu is the problem with this. The flu mutates all the time, so the vaccine's good for what exists, but it may not be good in three months' time. And it's exactly the same with the, a COVID-2 vaccine. It may be good now, but it may not be any good in, in three months' time. So there may be no point in doing the vaccination for it. Well, I, 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 I really hope you're right. Um, simply on, 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 I mean, if it's mandatory, I, I, I know a friend of mine said that uh, if Boris goes for mandatory vaccination, she'll leave the Conservative Party and never go to, <laughs> never, never go to another Conservative Party picnic again. So, um, you know, uh, I think a lot of people feel strongly about that. Um, I think it should be people's choice if they want it or not. And they have to do their own research and it's up to them, really, whatever they want to do. Um, do you feel that um, we have allowed you to communicate your message or are there any other points that you feel our audience should be aware of? Um, no, I think you have. I think it's been enjoyable talking to you, John. I think the, the way through this is not by compulsion and by psychological damaging messages to people. I think it's getting us out of here in a steady, it may be a bit slower than we'd like, but as fast as we can to get back to normal, to get everything back to normal. Why can't grandmothers kiss their grandchildren? That would seem to be a very normalizing message. Uh, and, you know, nobody really knows whether they should. They can in Italy, uh, interestingly. The, the, the state has issued an edict that it is now safe for grandmothers to kiss, uh, I, and I assume grandmothers, fathers as well to cuddle their, their grandchildren. It's those sort of things that mean so much to so many people. Mm. And here it's just glossed over. We've got to get back to normality. It involves getting the schools open. I was absolutely horrified when I read that Cambridge University decided to basically take a year off of lectures to make them distant lectures. And they did this three days ago. It was my old university. And I staggered how they could not, you know, I agree that's 
the worst case scenario that you have to take the year off. But a better way of doing is let's review the situation in July for September. And then if, if, if we can't do it in September, let's review it again in October for December and just move forward during the year. But just say, that's it. We're not doing lectures all year. What message does that give to primary school teachers that are supposed to go back to work on the 1st of June? So I think we've got to see stronger positive messages coming from government instead of these incredibly dull five o'clock I, I've stopped watching them. I don't know if you watch them, John. It's a, it's, it's not good. Well, I, I, to me, it smacks of uh, hypnosis or a type of brainwashing and a sort of a mass conditioning. And I don't like that. I don't like. Uh, I like to retain control over my own thoughts and mind. Um, I, I'm very, very disappointed with with how. Uh, Boris has handled this. I don't know what happened to him. Initially, he was resisting lockdown. Then, who knows what happened? There have been various different suggestions. Um, what I do feel that each of us can do, and that's why I just want to really thank you for coming on here, because you know this will be seen by 30, 40, 50,000 people across England and America and so on and so forth, and then there'll be other people, they'll share it within their groups, and these ideas travel. I think it is very, very important that, that those of us that do agree with what you've said, I think there's little things. I saw a, a picture of um, South End Beach filled to the gunnels, and I thought, oh, thank God, the British holiday spirit has not, not abandoned us. And I, I just have a sort of a gut feeling that if the British holiday maker is denied the right to pop off to Corfu or to uh, the Costa Brava, wherever it is they like to go, um, and they see the French somehow enjoying the south of France and the Spanish, and uh, little uh, let God help us if the Germans are sort of bagging all the all the all the uh, <laughs> you know, recliners on the beach. I, I think that may be the thing. We don't know what it is that is going to um, cause the spirit of Albion, let's say, to vanquish the spirit of Corona, but. Um, what I do know is that voices like yours are so important. And I'm sure you have taken a bit of a shellacking. Um, but thank God for you. And you are in our prayers. You are somebody who has taken it upon yourself to put your head above the parapet. You didn't have to. And I think you are a shining example for other people. And I would encourage other people to do the same. Um, and I really want to thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much. And and also do do come to Camelot Castle for dinner I will. when when you're out of lockup. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh yes, it was, a, it was a thank you. It'd be lovely to see you here. I'll contact you, well, John. Say goodbye, and um, I will call you a little later, Professor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you have the Dean, the Dean of uh, one of England's foremost universities, Buckingham University, somebody who has been outspoken. Do share this message. It's very, very important. Now, what do we have for you tomorrow night? My dear friend, now I'm just going to, tinker with the technical division and this may or may not work 
Mark, if you are watching, could you come through and just help with the technical division? I'm just going to try and see if this works again. I do have something to show you. Um, here we go. Show clips. I'm afraid for some reason I can't show you the clip that we prepared for you earlier. This is a bit like a cooking show that has gone slightly wrong. But I tell you what we do have. I tell you what we do have. Um, it's not on the it's not on the disc anymore, Mark. It's okay. It's not on the disc. I can't find where it went on the screen. So if you just give me two seconds, hang on a second. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You're going to see him tomorrow evening anyway. Um, let me tell you who we have coming here tomorrow. Here is a cartoon of him. There you go. This fellow here is Robert David Steele. And he's an interesting fellow. I just thought I'd give him a call last night. He's a friend, very good friend of Sasha Stone's. Sasha Stone, who, as you all know, by the way, you know, all of Sasha Stone's YouTube accounts have been cleared. He's been banned. Sasha Stone has been banned from YouTube. He's been taken down. And if you, what I would suggest all of you do is go onto our YouTube account and watch the uh, interviews that we did of Sasha Stone. Ours have not yet been taken down, but I'm sure they will be. I'm sure they will be. And tomorrow we're transferring everything to BitChute um, because um, the society is is actually censoring freedom fighters at the moment, and it's a it's a it's a very you know tragic thing. But anyway, this fellow is a friend of uh, this fellow here. I've just got a cartoon of him. I did have a little video, but of course our technical division has failed us again. There we go. This fellow here. Um, he is an ex. CIA clandestine operative and he's going to be joining us tomorrow night at 9.30. Now all I would say to you is hold on to your hats because Irina and I gave him a little call just to, by Skype last night just after the show at about 11.30 and we did not get off the phone until 3.30 in the morning. And every time I thought, oh, it's about time to end this conversation now, he started talking about something that was so fascinating. So fascinating. Um, somebody said, can we get David Icke to come on, come on our show? Well, he's a, David Icke is a friend of Robert Steele. And a number of people have asked David Icke to come on the show. I'd love to get David Icke on the show. We don't agree with everything. But you know what? We might agree with some things. And that's the thing, you see. We have to realise in this age of freedom fighting, we are back into pioneer realms. We are back into pioneer realms. We don't know. The least likely person of me, the me to be having a chat with the dean of Buckingham University, as we just met the fellow. You know, this is not a fellow that normally 
I would run into on a um, anything that sounds like headmaster or something like that, I would run a mile from, run a mile from a headmaster or a dean. So that's the last person you'd find me talking to. But, you know, necessity is the mother of creation, as they say. Or they say necessity is the mother. Um, somebody says we'll get banned for Ike. Maybe, maybe not. We are in pioneer realms. You're right, Tim. We are in pioneer realms. Pioneer realms. Um, I would like all of you to do... To go, go and find our YouTube thing. Also, please um, take a look through my Twitter account, John Mappin and Arena Mappin. There's some very important tweets on there. And one of the things I ask you to do, I don't ask you for much, um... There's no subscription. This is a free service. This is free to the planet. Not a problem at all. You're all welcome. But I would ask you to do this. Find my Twitter account and retweet the tweets because we're trying to get the truth out. We're trying to get the truth out. So, anyway, it's been a lovely evening. It's going to be a short broadcast tonight. Tune in tomorrow night because tomorrow night will not be a short broadcast. So I'm going to get my beauty sleep and um, I'll just give you uh, um, my YouTube account name is uh, Camelot TV Network, Camelot TV Network. And um, for those of you, there's many of you have been asking how you can come to Camelot Castle. Well, you can come to Camelot Castle this way. You get a voucher and for all of you that are watching the show. You can get one of those. How do you get that? You go to the Camelot Castle shop. CamelotCastleShop.com And we are very grateful, of course, to Camelot Castle. And, ah, look, there's the beach. That's my favourite picture of them all. There's the beach at Southend. You will not stop the British holidaymaker. That's the key. That's the key to all of this. I think it is the Britain's passion for their holidays that will um break the deadlock but um anyway it's been lovely spending some time with you i wish you all well arena wishes you all well she's looking after caspian tonight who's been busy painting and uh there's a little facebook video you can watch of him painting this afternoon did a very good job uh trying to paint he told me that we can fire all of our builders because he's going to do it all uh, which is very gallant of him. And, um, you know, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Lovely to have you here, and I will leave you with our uh, openings. Do please share these clips, and also go onto Twitter, and please share all the clips I put out of Katie Hopkins the other night. You know, these, these communications do reach. They are changing things. They are changing the message, and it is very very important thanks so much see you tomorrow 9 30 9 30 tomorrow mm -hmm.